Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me. For the next few minutes, we're going to talk about one of my heroes, Shinichi Suzuki. He is the founder of the Suzuki Method of Violin Teaching, and his book, Nurtured by Love, I happened upon many years ago, and it has really changed my life and been a huge guiding light to me in many instances. My name is Audrey Rinlisbacher. I'm the author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. And I'm super excited to be with you today and talk about this incredible man and his incredible wife, actually. He was born in 1898 and he was Japanese. He lived to be 99 years old. And, you know, I'm sure he had good genes, but I also like to attribute that to the type of life that he led. He led a very happy one. And that was uh, because of the principles he centered his life around. He was really a great man. I want to talk to you about him in terms of and within the framework of the seven laws of life mission and talk to you about how he lived each of those laws and progressed down that mission path that we talk about so much here at the Mission Driven Mom. He was raised by a father of high moral character. Now, his dad, through much trial and error, had taught himself how to make a violin. And he had built a violin factory from the ground up. He was not born um, entitled, didn't have money of his own. He started from scratch. And at the height, his factory turned out 400 violins a day and employed 1,100 workers. He, of course, became a very wealthy man. He owned a mansion and a lot of real estate. But when the Depression hit, and this is important, this next part of the story about his father, because Suzuki was old enough to watch his father go through this, and he participated in some of the things that his father did, and it made a huge impression on who Suzuki became. So he watched the kind of man his dad was. He treated his workers like gold. He really did. He, he, he loved them. He honored them. He thought of them as equals to himself. And he proved that when hard times hit. You know, sometimes it's easy to claim that, to claim that we really think of others and uh, we're not focused on the money or on position or how others think of it. But his dad really proved it. So the depression hit and kind of his honesty and integrity were brought to bear. This is what his father said. I will be responsible for everyone. After all, the company, my property too, was built up through the efforts and cooperation of my workers. I will not dismiss a single person as long as there is anything left. I owe it to them. So that's the statement he made at the beginning of the depression, that he was committed to his people above all else. And then he proceeded to prove it. He sold off his mansion in order to decrease that cost and, and be able to dump that money into the business and kept everybody on as long as he humanly could, sold off other properties and and everything in order to just keep everyone employed because he knew they had nowhere to go. He knew how big much they were going to struggle to find another job. So 
Eventually, it became clear to him that he couldn't keep all his workers. So when that happened, he did everything he could to provide provisions for them before they had to be let go. He would uh, set money aside. He would find them a new position and do whatever he could do in order to make them as comfortable as possible when he had to let them go. And when the working force had been pretty dramatically decreased, the ones that remained were moved into a smaller factory. And, and through a lot of diligence and effort on the part of the dad and the, and the kids and the workers that remained, who of course by this point I'm sure felt all kinds of loyalty to uh, Mr. Suzuki for his commitment to them, they worked their heart outs, hearts out to keep it alive. People who had known the factory in former times, Suzuki said, the son, Suzuki, its, its successor must have seemed very shabby and poor. But to my father, the object of his enterprise was not only the money. It was a way of putting his high principles of life into action. The fact that the factory flourished again after the war can be ascribed only to the heritage of honesty and sincerity left by my father. Some of the things that Suzuki was taught in his home, and I'll tell you a couple more stories in just a minute, but some of the principles that his father really ingrained in him through different experiences include the following, never to lend money, to manage his money and be generous with others, which of course you can see he lived those principles, to be sociable and introduce yourself to others, to learn from others. He constantly harped on Shinichi, um, to to be teachable, to be humble, to surround himself with people he could learn from, and then to be their constant student, to be a good listener, to listen first and then, and then, and then speak kind of a empathic listening skills. He learned, be grateful for everything and don't ask for anything in return. Just be full of gratitude. His father made him work every summer in the violin factory, even though his family was well off. And he taught him to learn from the workers and to work with them. He always loved working in the factory. Um, and when he was young, uh, there's a, a story about how he, he, he felt that he was no better. This is the son felt that he was no better than the other workers in the factory and the owners, you know, the privileged people, the bosses, the managers didn't show up to work until seven, but the workers showed up at five. And Suzuki, in order to show his commitment to his fellow workers, did the same thing and showed up early to work every day. He got in the habit of waking up at five and woke up at five all his life. So really incredible examples uh, that Suzuki learned from and became a man very much like his father. Now, in terms of this law one, I have been unable to discover whether or not Suzuki was a Christian. He, he says in, in some ways, sometimes that, um, he perhaps was certainly very devoted to God and his wife was German and they were just very, very good people, had a very, very happy marriage. And so I, I can't find it. I've, I've read what I can find on him online in a book form and I can't discern that for sure, but I, I want to tell you a story. This, uh, this story is also um, in one of the lectures in the academy because I just absolutely loved it. It made such a huge impact on me. I've shared it lots of places. And I want to share it here again as really the foundation of his love of God. This is Suzuki's own words. 
He's about uh, 16, 17 years old when this happened. One day, as usual, I set off for my father's violin factory, where a thousand people were employed, and I entered the office. I discovered an English typewriter, a novelty for me, and started punching the keys. Just then, the chief of the export department came in and reprimanded me. Master Shinichi, you mustn't type without paper in the, machi in the machine. Oh, but I'm not really pushing the keys down, I promptly lied. Oh, I see, he replied simply and went out. But he was hardly out of sight before I was filled with severe anger against myself and contrition. Coward, I thought. Why did I dissemble and not just apologize meekly? I couldn't bear it any longer and went home. But I could not sit still. I went down to Hirokoji Street. I had to do something to get rid of my self-contempt. I went into a bookstore and looked around some books on a shelf at random. After some time, fate led me to a copy of Tolstoy. It was the small Tolstoy's diary. I casually took it down from the shelf and opened it at random. My eyes fell on the following words. To deceive oneself is worse than to deceive others. These harsh words pierced me to the core. It was a tremendous shock. I began to tremble with fear and could scarcely control myself. I bought the little book and rushed home. I devoured its contents. I read and reread that book so much that in the end it fell apart. What a marvelous man Tolstoy must have been. My admiration for him led me to immerse myself in all his writings. Tolstoy provo provided the staff of life on which I nurtured my soul. Now that's key because this is one of the things that we talk about in the academy too in terms of the level one love of God and self is this, this core book that we have, this central classic that we hold dear, that we keep with us, that we learn from again and again. Now, of course, Tolstoy was Christian and very much believed in God. And so I don't know. But Suzuki went on to say that Tolstoy's diary was always at his side. Now, that is really the definition of something that is truly a central classic for you. You read it, you devour it. He says, Whenever I went, wherever I went, I took it with me. Several years later, when at 23, I went to Germany to study, the book went with me in my pocket. Tolstoy said that one should not deceive oneself and that the voice of conscience is the voice of God. I determined to live according to these ideas. He said that, he also said that the book was basically falling apart because he kept it with his, him anywhere, everywhere. He, he always had it in his pocket. He would pull it out and read and just nurtured his soul on the kinds of things that Tolstoy wrote in his diaries. And I've read some of them. There's some fantastic stuff in there. In fact, there's some really great insights into um, natural law and and the idea of, of natural law and principles and things. Really fascinating. So Suzuki definitely had a strong belief in God, a strong belief in natural law, and a strong belief in true principles. In fact, his book, Nurtured by Love, is so full of the word principle that I put it in level two of the academy when we're studying principles, just so that as students learn how to find principles as they read, they have the opportunity to go through this book, not just to kind of fall in love with Suzuki like I did, but also to think through each time he says principle, whether or not it is a principle. 
So that's a, a really cool exercise. But it's because he was so principle-centered and Tolstoy led him to be that kind of person, introduced him to all you know, kinds of the concepts that we, that we talk about here. And the voice of conscience being the voice of God, Suzuki was true to that commitment all his life. He has a quote, and I'm not sure if I can find it here, um, but he said somewhere, if you feel like you should do something, just do it. Don't pause. Don't wait. Um, just do it right away because don't give yourself time to think it through. If it's a good thing, do it. And, and you'll find that you don't have regrets. And so he believed that, uh, God had placed within him a knowledge of right and wrong and that it was his responsibility to discern that. And if you've read Tolstoy's uh, diaries or had any exposure to that, you know that that was Tolstoy's journey, his lifelong battle with himself to be the best man that he could to overcome his weaknesses, uh, to adhere to truth, to, to be a truth seeker. And that really nurtured Suzuki's soul and he wanted to be the caliber of man that that Tolstoy had been. And so he carried Tolstoy's diary within. Now, now, if he had other scripture, I can't find it anywhere. His, his, he doesn't have a lot of like original writings. This Nurtured by Love is kind of an autobiography. It's a bunch of different things that Suzuki wrote down and actually his wife published after he died uh, and had translated. So he didn't set about necessarily to tell the whole story of his life. I don't think he was kind of egocentric enough to do that. I don't know. Um, he was, he was very, very kind of smiling, loving, pleasant, um, quiet and, and, and never, never presuming. So I can see why that wouldn't have kind of been on his radar to do that, but he wanted to share certain truths and insights he discovered. So you kind of have to piecemeal it through with Suzuki. So I do know that his book and his writings are full of the idea of God and principles and truths and being committed to being your best and um, living according to your own conscience, loving God by living his laws. Another person that had a great influence on on Suzuki was his um, school. I guess it would be, we would call it the principal. There was a school motto that he helped to create that said first character and then ability. Suzuki said, these words were inscribed on a tablet that hung in the lecture hall. This principle has been a light to my path all my life and is written on my heart. So first character, then ability. And, and that's what he taught his students. And, and that was at the really at the heart of the Suzuki method that just really spread worldwide after he had done all these cool things uh, to prepare for that, that I'll tell you about. So, the next part of his journey was about these, about law two, these principles of law two, self-discovery, self-management, and um, self-care. So I want to tell you a story of when he was in high school. He um, became the student body president, and he had this really incredible experience that really demonstrates his his willingness to, his ability to be self-managing, the leadership skills he had already developed that were an outgrowth of his self-discipline. Of course, rising at five, behaving as, as the other workers was also about self, self-governance self and self-management. 
He took walks every day. He was very good to his younger siblings. He would take them out on walks every morning and spend time with them, even when he was older. And just really committed to to living what he knew. Of course, committing himself to obey his conscience at all times was a huge part of his own uh, journey of self-management. So I'm going to read you what happened to him. Really fascinating in high school what went down and and how it developed even more character in him and and kind of displayed the character he had developed to that point. In his last year of high school, during the final exams, a student caught one of his peers cheating during the final exam test. Now, this is a big, big deal. This, This final exam is like so much depends upon it and you just, you don't cheat. So they're in this classroom together and one student catches another student cheating the student that caught the other student cheating promptly announced um, this to the entire classroom. The cheating student was asked to leave for the remainder of the test while the other students completed it. Once the exam was over and the teacher had left the classroom, a third student leaped on the informer, asking him what kind of friend he was, and he punched him. Some of the other students in the class began beating up the, the informer, the one that had told on the cheater. Presently, they sent for Suzuki, as he was class president, and he immediately took responsibility for everything, even though he knew that the consequences might be dire, and even though he hadn't been the one to punch the student. He informed the school leadership that everyone had been involved and then returned to the students and suggested that they all take the consequences together. What we did, we had to do out of friendship, he said. If you all agree, I'd like to say that it was sanctioned by all of us, and this year, I want everyone to fail the examination. Even though even those who had not taken part in the assault raised their hands, and we all agreed to stay for a fifth year. Now, it's costly. The, the parents have to pay for school. And if they fail this final exam, they have to stay for another year. And their parents have to pay for it. Or they do. And they would be staying with this student that had been cheating. All class members were interrogated. And even though Suzuki had not participated in the fight, he and nine other students, the quote, roughnecks of the class, were to be punished with his name on the top of the list. But he wasn't bitter. He understood that he was the president and must take responsibility. He went home to get his father the painful news that he would have to spend another year in school at his father's expense. But the students loved Suzuki, and they recognized what he had done for them and how unfair the punishment was especially since many of those involved in the fight had not even been punished. They went on a sympathy strike and didn't come to school for a week. The principal who had created the motto, first character, then ability, came to Suzuki after the strike with tears in his eyes, commended their students for their loyalty and love for each other, and forgave them all. The test was re-administered to all the students, and they all passed. So his commitment to his his fellow students, his willingness to take the consequences upon himself and to take full responsibility as the leader is just phenomenal. I mean, the amount of self-discipline and character that he had developed by the time he was a senior in high school is just phenomenally displayed in this example. He also, of course, in addition to having clearly, you know, good self-care and good self-management skills that he developed, he, he engaged in a lot of self-discovery. Um, 
one of the things he discovered early is that he really loved children and they loved him. Now, he and his wife never had any th- kids. I think they couldn't. Uh, they were surrounded by children in the work that they did. And they also, um, a handful of times for different reasons, had taken in children that they cared for. So they were very much parental you know, figures in the lives of many, many children. When he returned home from working in the factory, the neighborhood children would run to him and ask him to play with them. And like I said, he would also take his younger siblings on a morning walk every day. And he was very good with children. He loved learning and studying the philosophers and um, talk about that more in just a minute. He learned to love classical music and especially Mozart. You should hear how he talks about Mozart with uh, with Mozart with just so much reverence. It's it's amazing how highly he thinks of Mozart and his music. He said it was just really kind of a, a staff of life for him. It nurtured him. It taught him love, he said. Um, he thought that violins were toys. He didn't know that they were made for music when he was younger. And when his family bought a gramophone and he heard Ava Marie, Ave Maria, excuse me, he fell in love with music and taught himself to play the violin by listening to recordings. Even though his dad owned a violin factory, he had to learn what a violin was for in a roundabout way and learn to play it on his own. So he learned to love music, study the greats, children, and he loved spending time with and learning from great men. I'll tell you more about that in just a minute. So definitely uh, did a great job at law two in loving himself and doing things in his life that um, that created greater self-discipline and that taught him better who he was. So law three, loving truth. He definitely, like I mentioned, talks about principles all the time. He was a very principle-centered man. I think Tolstoy put him on that path. But there's uh, some really great stories. I'll tell you one right now um, that kind of help show that he wasn't always principle-centered in certain areas. He definitely learned some key principles from his father, continued to learn and grow in that realm, and to be humble enough to embrace those principles when he found them. This is one example. He says... One day, a university professor who had helped me find lodgings and such came to see me. Now, this is when, and I'll talk about this in just a minute. This is when he's studying music in Germany. He said, uh, so, so he's there, he's living. This professor had helped him find a place to live. And he came to see me and he said, my wife and I have to make a trip home unexpectedly and we haven't enough money available. I hesitate to ask you, but... At that time, the passage by sea for two was 2,000 yen. With another 500 yen for incidental expenses, they would be able to travel in comfort. I said I would lend it to them and ask them to reimburse my fa- and ask them to reimburse my father in Nagoya. After the couple had sailed, I wrote to my father to explain what I had done and to get his approval. His reply took me aback. His father sent this back to him and said, I sent you that money for your studies. I am shocked at your impertinence in lending it. In the future, you are never to lend or borrow money. If you have money enough to lend, it is better to share it and share your friend's hardships too. Lending the surplus money and considering that it would be all right if the money were returned to my father was juvenile thinking. On receiving my father's admonition, I determined never to lend money again. From that time on, I have lived according to a certain plan. I decide how much money I need each month to live and set it aside so that it may not be used for any other purpose. What is left is for myself and my friends. 
Many complications arise over money, but my father's injunction has saved me from them. And although my method may sound ridiculous, it has enabled me to get along without living beyond my means, without either taking advantage of friends or getting involved in unpleasant transactions with them. So I, I just loved that story because here he is, makes an honest mistake out of ignorance. And as soon as he learns the principle, he commits himself wholeheartedly. I'm going to live according to this principle the rest of my life. And it wasn't just the principle of lending. It was other principles like philanthropy and budgeting and um, setting money aside that just kept him out of a lot of financial trouble all his life. And so it's so admirable how he, you know, one, one trait that I continue to find in these great men and women is just their ability to make and keep commitments to themselves. They're just amazing at their consistency in finding truth and then submitting to it and committing to it. Um, this is another small example. When I was in junior high, there was a time when four of the neighborhood children and I used to visit our local shrine every evening. We talked about all sorts of things on our way to and fro. That is all there was to it but it was a pleasant daily task. Then one day my father asked me, what do you say when you visit the shrine? I replied that I asked for protection for all of my family, but my father remonstrated. Stop being so selfish, he said. When you go to the shrine each day, all you should say is thank you very much. Since then, whatever holy place I visit, I only express gratitude saying thank you very much. And so that principle of gratitude was really ingrained in him. And he was always careful to, he met his needs. Like he said, he set aside the money for his own needs. He wasn't a martyr about it. And he went on daily walks and he, you know, filled his life with friendships. He really did meet his needs, but he didn't do it. Um, he didn't ignore his own needs or the, or the needs of others. So he was able to be generous and he was able to be grateful. So definitely loved truth, was definitely a truth seeker. And in conjunction with that, um, when, uh, when he got turned on to Tolstoy, in that section of the book, he goes on to say this, I got so that I only did enough schoolwork to prevent my failing examinations. I was fascinated with works that searched for the meaning of life, such as Bacon's essays and books on Western philosophy. And it was probably Tolstoy who started it all with me. So with law four and being, um, being self-educating so that he could learn the ways of the world. Remember if you've read the book, it talks about how we can't truly love someone until we know them. That's why we have to get to know God and we have to get to know ourselves. We also have to get to know the world. And when he was studying Western philosophy, he was learning all about the world. He was learning history. He was learning the way people think. He was learning principles of human nature. And he was learning about the world, different worldviews and cycles of history and all the things that taught him about different peoples and different times and different cultures, and it manifests itself. This self-education that he engaged in really fared him well wherever he went, and it made him able to relate to people of all nationalities. And when his work, I mean, when he was in Germany studying music, he met people from all over the world and it was massively helpful there. And then of course, later on, his work became worldwide and this love of humanity really was, really became part of him. So through a series of really cool events, 
he eventually was able to go to Germany and study music. And at first he was only going to go there for a short period of time. He ended up staying there for eight years and he had a really cool experience because he was really committed to being his best and doing his best and learning as much as he could. He said, arriving in Germany, I looked for the best violin teacher and found him in Professor Carl Klinger. The professor gave me some difficult music as homework. I practiced every day for five hours, but however hard I tried, it was as if a big wall prevented my advance. This continued many days, many months. I didn't get ahead at all. A sad resignation settled over me. It is hopeless. I have no talent, I told myself. Besides, I heard concerts of great musicians that only discouraged me more. To hear the famous Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra filled me with so many excellent players affected me adversely and made me even more miserable and helpless. What a pity, I thought. Without talent, trying so hard every day, it's not worth it, I told myself. I felt that I had no ability and wanted to die. This kind of feeling more or less afflicts every young person, especially those who want to embrace art closely. Seeing the great work and talent of predecessors and comparing it with his or her own ability, as well as being told that talent is inborn, can make a young person melancholy and filled with despair. Many young people who doubt their talent may even entertain suicidal thoughts, but instead of being remorse without hope, they should begin to say by saying talent is not inborn, it can be created. So then he goes on to say that he studied and studied and studied. He found a different teacher, Miss Ando, uh, studied at the Music Academy in UNO, private theory, private acoustic lessons, um, worked with Professor Klinger for eight years, two-hour lessons every week, practicing four to five hours a day, and then studying great works. A really cool thing about his time in, in um, Germany is that through some connections that he had made, he became friends with Albert Einstein and became part of Einstein's circle, and eventually Einstein became a guardian of his, and of course Einstein was a great musician too. And they would play and sing together and uh, study and talk about great ideas. So he really had this incredible mentoring during these years, this incredible preparation for his later work. He said, from the time I left Japan, it was not, at the beginning, it was his objective to become a performer. He, that was his, his initial goal. I, fascinated by music, I wanted to learn the secret of this man-made art. What is art? I wanted to know. Despairing and disillusioned by my lack of performing ability, I was spurred on by my hurt pride in my quest for the secret of art. And it cured my despair. Even if I had no talent and even if my progress was slow, I determined to plod on step by step toward my goal of becoming a whole, well-rounded human being. I did not hurry, but I did not rest either. I endeavored ceaselessly, and it gave me both peace of mind and something to live for. So at one point during his study time there, it became clear to him he didn't have what it took to be a great performer. That just was not going to happen for him. And that's what he did is he decided, well, I can be the best person I can be. And that's a theme he would say to his students and the parents all the time. It isn't about, in fact, I'll tell you this story really quickly. One of the parents came to him one time and said, Sensei, will my boy amount to something? And this was Suzuki's reply. No, he will not become something. He will become a noble person through his violin playing. Isn't that good enough? You should stop wanting your child to become a professional, a good money earner. This thought is concealed in your question and it's offensive. A person with a fine and pure heart will find happiness. The only concern for parents should be to bring up their children as noble human beings. That is sufficient. If this is not their greatest hope, in the end, the child may make a road contrary to their expectation. 
Your son plays the violin very well. We must try to make him splendid in mind and heart also. It was so, so beautiful. And that's the kind of person that he was and who he was endeavoring to become. Now, I know we've gone a little bit long. I want to share a couple more stories with you into his second phase of mission. Clearly, you can see that he had traveled abroad and studied all the great works, not all of them, but a lot of them. He had a broad, deep education that helped him to understand humanity in a new way to love them. He had a deep and abiding understanding of music. He had worked on character first and then ability, just like his principal said to do. And he really had become a man of character who had those those four loves and those first, first four laws. And so, of course, a call came when he got back from Germany, he formed a band with his brothers and he kind of had started teaching some violin on the side and he was uh, kind of trying to, you know, make a path for himself. Kind of what's the next phase for me? You know, I'm in my, my kind of my mid to late twenties now. I need to kind of make a career for myself of some kind. And he said, one day a man brought his four-year-old son to Suzuki and said, will you please teach my boy violin? And so Suzuki was like, man, I, I don't know anybody that teaches four-year-olds violin. That's just not a thing that's done. And I don't know how to do it. I've never done it, but just kind of let me think about it for a little bit. And so this is what he said about this experience when he just kind of saw his way forward. I didn't know how to train such a small child or what to teach him. I didn't have such experience. What kind of violin training would be good for a four-year-old? I thought about it from morning to night. At that time, three of my brothers and I had just formed the Suzuki Quartet. One day when we were practicing at the house of my younger brother, it hit me like a flash. All Japanese children speak Japanese. The thought struck me like a flash of light in a dark night. Since they all speak Japanese so easily and fluently, there must be a secret, and this must be the training. Indeed, all children everywhere in the world are brought up by a perfect educational method, the mother tongue. Why not apply this method to other faculties? I felt I had made a tremendous discovery. My discovery actually had great significance. It made me realize that any child is able to display highly superior abilities if only the correct methods are used in training. This happened about 30 years ago when I was 33 or 34 years old. Following up the thought that struck me so forcibly on that day and trying to find a solution soon became the basic purpose of my life. So that was the call. That was the insight that he had into this is what I need to do. I need to find a way to help children learn violin. But actually, it wasn't about teaching kids to learn violin. It was about this idea that he calls talent education. And it really was so much bigger than music. He wanted to show the world what he felt passionate about, what he knew his message was. And, and having a message is one of the key things about mission that that's talked about in the book as well. Every one of these mission-driven individuals had a message. And his message is anyone can develop skills. Now there is inbred, you're just naturally really good at this. And if you get this, you know, the training, you can be even better. But there was a certain level of musical ability that he knew was available to every child. And he proved it over and over again by taking children in their young years from all different backgrounds 
and by showing that they could become proficient on the violin. So he moved forward with this talent education goal and vision in mind, knowing that all children could become good in music and good in other things too. And then started a 13 year uh, preparation. There's a there's a part in the in the book that talks about how when you hear the call, then there's more preparation necessary. Now you would think, oh well, he's incredibly proficient in music. He's played five hours a day for eight years. Yes, he is proficient in music. Now he's got to go deep in the talent education component and in teaching children proficiency in music so that he can build out that um, vision. And so for 13 years from 1930 to 1943, he taught violin lessons to young children in his home. And he was an instructor at the Imperial Music School and a different, another, the Kunichaki Music School as well. There were some really difficult trials. Um, he experienced some opposition from people and some incredible trials during World War II when he had to stop his work for a while. And as soon as the war was over, his preparation was at an end and the opportunity to take this to a broader audience came to him. He said, the talent education movement started in 1945. Now remember, he was born in, what was it, 98? So he's 47 years old. He's been around music all his life, uh, been around violins since he was a teenager. He's been playing music, but it wasn't until he was... 47 years old that the movement really started because he had this incredible foundation in the laws. He was completely prepared in all the different facets and he could see what needed to be done next. It was the end of our uh, three years life in uh, Kiso Fukushima in Matsumoto among the cultural minded. There was talk of founding a music school. So they had just been through some hard things in the war and now they were settled back and they wanted this music school by chance, which isn't by chance, of course, because mission finds us when we're ready. Mrs. Tamiki Mori, a singer who had taught with me at the Imperial Music School, had been evacuated to Matsumoto. She was interested in the proposal school and she sent a message to me asking me to come there and help. I sent the following answer. I'm not interested in doing repair work on people who can play already. I did enough of that before in Tokyo. What I want is to try infant education. I have worked out a new method I want to teach to small children, not to turn out geniuses, but through violin playing to extend the child's ability. I have been doing this research for many years. That is why I want to put all my efforts into this kind of education in the future. If my idea finds approval, I will help with teaching along those lines. After a while, the answer came that they had consented to my terms and wanted to help. Within five years, the Talent Education Research Institute was formed and they began giving concerts. As part of their foundational elements, they laid out the principles of talent education. I'm going to read you this, these principles really quickly as we finish up. Number one, every child can be educated. Two, learning begins the day a child is born. Three, intuition is a very important principle of talent education. Four, never force children to practice or rehearse. Five, human ability develops through practice and exercise. Six, why is it necessary to practice every day? Because you develop the ability if you practice every day. And seven, children need to feel confident in their abilities and thoroughly master what they are learning. 
In fact, Suzuki became so good at violin teaching and, and playing that people would send him cassette tapes up to 1500 a year every year and he would listen to their playing and send back advice on fingering, bowing, etc. Of course, because this is before any kind of video is able to be sent, if they could do a tape recording of themselves, he would give them feedback on how to play better based solely on listening to the tapes. He said, close to 30 years have passed and all my former student friends are today fine adults, with which fills me with deep, profound joy. That is Shinichi Suzuki, and I know we went a little bit longer today. He is an amazing man. There's so much more that I could tell you. The talent education movement became worldwide. There's foundations in many major countries. And of course, Suzuki books are well known. It's a, it's a method that works child after child because it's based on solid principles that he uncovered and that he taught throughout his life. I want to end uh, by these words with these words from Suzuki, which are so inspiring. People say that I'm trying to do the impossible and expending my energies for nothing. But I know what I conceive is possible, and I believe that one day the human race will create the kind of world in which everyone will realize that children have the potential. That is why at the United Nations, after Casals had spoken on world peace, I appealed to the representatives of the nation of the world to do something. What I am trying to do now is to apply my talent education to all areas of life. I'm trying to get sympathetic primary school principals to try out methods of education that will ensure that not even one student fails in school. I am also trying to get something done about mentally retarded children and to persuade sympathetic politicians to clarify national policy with regard to children. His vision was massive. He wanted to expand talent education into every area of life and his impact has been worldwide and immense. He's an incredible man. I encourage you to get his book and to learn more about him because he will really inspire you to be your best. Thanks so much for joining me. If you don't have a copy of The Mission Driven Life, head on over to themissiondrivenmom.com and grab your own copy. Learn all about the seven laws of life mission and put yourself on that path. See you next time.